Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. This is a bonus edition in which we'll be exploring the implications of Angela Rayner's appointment as Shadow Leveling Up Secretary and finding out more about Housing Secretary Michael Gove's promised crack team of skilled planners to deliver large-scale developments. But before we get into that, John, tell us about the key news stories from the past seven days. Up first, the government has delayed the impending introduction of new rules requiring a mandatory biodiversity net gain of 10% in all new developments until January 2024. In other policy news, the government expects its confirmed increase in planning application fees to come into force by the end of the year, subject to parliamentary approval. Meanwhile, ministers are planning to table new legislation to unblock homes currently held up by nutrient neutrality rules at the first available opportunity, the levelling up and housing secretary Michael Gove has said. Elsewhere, developer Coma Group has been ordered to tear down a 200-home Riverside apartment complex in Woolwich, South London, after the Royal Borough of Greenwich found that the built scheme, which it labelled a mutant development, was substantially different to the designs it had approved. In Essex, a 56-year-old woman has been arrested on suspicion of bribery in connection with a police investigation into Thurrock Council's consideration of a planning application for a large logistics park on a Greenbelt site. And finally, Housing Minister Rachel McLean has rejected plans to redevelop an office block near London Bridge and replace it with a tower of 26 or 37 storeys, providing around 50,000 square metres of commercial floor space. She found that the scheme would cause potential harm to both nearby heritage assets and the area's townscape character and appearance. Thanks very much, John. And of course, more details on each of those stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. So now to return to Room 106 for our deep dive. See you later, John. All the best. Well, here I am again in the room in which all new planning information is gathered. Last month, we learned that there'd been a reshuffle at senior level in the Labour Party and uh, Shadow Leveling Up Secretary Lisa Nandy had been replaced by the Deputy Party leader, Angela Rayner. So I'm hoping that we can get a bit more insight into this, and I believe that in the corner of Room 106, in which Labour Party information is stored, I'm going to be able to find our special correspondent, Joey Gardner. Ah, here he is. Hello, Joey. Hi, Richard. How are you? Very well, thank you. And, uh, and you too. You, you've been spending a bit of time in here recently, I understand. I absolutely have, yeah, delving through the archives. Fantastic. Well, can you start off by telling us a bit about why Nandy was replaced by Rayner? The narrative in the press essentially seems to be that, that Lisa Nandy still harbours some leadership ambitions. Of course, she's, she's run for the leadership of the Labour Party before. That clearly didn't sit comfortably with Keir Starmer by all accounts, whereas Angela Rayner is one of the Labour Party politicians at the same time with the highest profile amongst the electorate, and it was felt 
in the role that she had, she wasn't given really a big enough platform day to day to be able to um, speak out and really have a have a platform on which to connect with the electorate. So the idea was he was able to remove Lisa Nandy and give Angela Rayner a bit more of a platform. And how much of a track record does Angela Rayner have in planning? Really very little at all. I mean, unlike many frontbench politicians, uh, Angela Rayner doesn't have a track record or, or a backstory as a as a councillor previously as an MP she really has a history of um, just passing constituents concerns when she receives them on planning matters without comment to the her local authority which is Tameside in Greater Manchester there's only really if you look back at her track record as a local MP. There's a, it only seems to be one major campaign that she got involved in to do with planning where she she campaigned to preserve or save our green spaces. But but even there she didn't she didn't actually actively oppose development that was happening. She simply wanted to ensure that the developer, which was Taylor Wimpy in this case, revised the particular planning application to ensure that the amount of green space was improved or or increased. In her previous role as deputy leader, when she has mentioned planning and housing, and she has done, she has essentially always towed the party line. Some have talked about the contradictions within this. You know, she's made comments about England needing to roll its sleeve up and build things, but at the same time talked about Labour's plans for a take-back control bill where more decisions are kind of quotes uh, taken by local people with skin in the game. So, you know, there are inherent contradictions or potential contradictions, I should say there. But really in that, I don't think you should particularly read anything into Angela Rayner's stance personally there. She's just, when she's making those comments, she's She's just been reiterating what the current or what that party policy was at that particular time. In so many instances with current politics as it relates to planning, it feels that parties want voters to feel that they're they're actively promoting house building and increasing local people's control over development. And I guess many in the sector feel that those two objectives are irreconcilable, but um, both political parties would, uh, would, would say that was their objective. I mean, it would be arguable in the case of the take-back control bill. The principal point of that that Labour is proposing is around local, regional, sub-regional devolution of powers. It's not directly a planning bill. So I think you would be able to make arguments that those two stances aren't directly contradictory in that case. And I'm sure the Labour Party would make that case. She's obviously a high-profile figure. What's the impact of her appointment going to be on the profile of planning? I think it's it's a clear sign, or it's certainly being interpreted as a clear sign of the importance uh, of the housing and planning agenda that's being, or the importance that Keir Starmer is putting on that agenda as he looks forward to the, the next election. I mean, according to polling, Angela Rayner is by far the most high-profile Labour Party figure behind Keir Starmer. You know, she's she's some distance ahead in kind of public recognition terms beyond the shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves. So 
I think you can say that it's a boost to the sector, potentially in profile terms, in that sense. Her style clearly is seen as quite combative, you know, potentially quite fiery. She's clearly perceived as somewhat of a left winger. But the sense also from commentators is that this, I guess, there's a potential for a caricature of her as some a kind of left-wing firebrand. And the reality is that actually she's much more nuanced than that. And if you look at the reality of the deal or the deals that she's she's struck, you know, with policies she's brought forward, such as with the New Deal for Working People, she's actually quite willing to strike pragmatic deals. Uh, You know, she may be off the left, but she is not not an ideologue by any means. It's quite interesting, isn't it, to have a Labour deputy leader who's got the housing and planning brief. Obviously, for people with long memories, it will remind them of a situation where those housing planning regeneration issues had a very high profile when John Prescott was um, deputy prime minister. Of course, we don't know what's going to happen in the next election, but if the um, polls at the moment are indicating that certainly the prospect of a Labour government is is something that uh, anybody who's trying to plan ahead and look ahead and see what might be coming down the track in our sector needs to be taking seriously. No, of course, and John Prescott is the comparison that people make to Angela Rayner, principally because of her function, as is perceived by commentators, within a party that is broadly seen as relatively centrist. She is seen as appealing as a figure that appeals to um, those on the left within her party, as John Prescott was often seen as doing, and you know, connecting with a more traditional working class voter or constituency within the Labour Party. If she raises the profile of planning and, and housing in, in, in sort of political debate, what impact might that have on what the current government is is doing in, in, in this area? I mean, some people feel that her combative approach could actually push the government to change its stance in, in areas if she's going to be pushing the government harder in areas. One could argue that Lisa Nandy's and the previous decisions to push so hard on on house building have already started to have have an impact if you can see the the government's changing stance on nutrients as a result of that almost more interesting is the extent to which Rayner might be likely to actually change labor's position on planning and housing from the position that had has started to be laid out under Lisa Nandy as much as you know everyone's anticipating a big change of style and maybe a change of stress and a change of rhetoric i don't think people are, are anticipating a big change in substantive policy just remind us what labor's key policy positions on planning were prior to rainer's arrival Labour over the past six months have uh, started to lay out a number of key policy uh, planning and housing policy positions. Uh, I say in housing because principally they've been around the housing agenda as well. And they've been around essentially taking a more pro-development stance than the current government. So they've talked about reinstating uh, kind of meaningful 
housing targets in comparison with the proposals of the NPPF reforms that we saw Michael Gove bring forward before Christmas, bolster things like compulsory purchase orders, potentially with changes to how hope value is treated. Most controversially, I guess, free up the possibility of greater greenbelt releases via strategic reviews of um, greenbelt allocations. But you're not expecting massive change of direction with Rayner taking control of this uh, portfolio. But if change does occur, what areas do commentators think it might happen in? Commentators are expecting very little substantive actual change. I think what they're expecting is, given Angela Rayner's very high-profile history as someone that grew up in council housing and a real clear kind of personal commitment to that, everyone seems to be expecting a kind of a change in rhetorical focus. You know, we're going to hear a lot more about council housing and social housing and affordable housing. And maybe we will hear less about planning. But I think the appointment of Matthew Pennycook as the shadow housing minister, the, the reappointment, I should make clear, he, he was the shadow housing minister uh, under Lisa Nandy, who has had the job of working up a lot of the detailed policy that sat underneath the kind of broad thrusts that were uh, of policy ideas that had been sketched out by the leader's team. You know, his reappointment should be interpreted as a sign that they really don't want to change the actual substantive policy positions at all. That seems to be the unified view of both Labour insiders and commentators from outside the party as well. One thing she's already done is oppose the relaxation of the rules preventing house builders from polluting um, protected watercourses. Uh, the government wanted to relax them in order to allow house building that's being held up by those rules at the moment and Labour have opposed that and that's fatally wounded that proposal which is now not going to happen not for the moment anyway so some people have looked at that and said well maybe this is a sign that with Rayner handling the portfolio they're going to be less pro house building than they looked like they were going to be this time last year or or, or certainly after Christmas when um, when Lisa Nandy was uh, spelling out her determination to get the country building more homes? I really don't think that is a sign of a wider shift. I mean, both the uh, uh, kind of senior sources I've spoken to inside the Labour Party and those outside it agree on this. Before Lisa was kind of moved to her her new briefer, before the reshuffle, you know, Labour hadn't taken a, a final position on what on what it was going to do about nutrients. So it isn't the case that Angela Rayner actually came in and changed Labour's position on this. It was the case that Labour hadn't reached its final position on this. Labour was presented with an opportunity to defeat the government and Labour took it. It was probably a sign that Labour is confident enough that it's done enough to show that it's pro development, that it feels it can make this point in an area where actually, you know, it, it it has lots and lots of different constituencies that it's trying to appeal to. And one of the constituencies that Labour is desperate to appeal to and having lots of success in appealing to is those that are 
very concerned about environmental issues and the pollution in rivers and things like that. So it needed to show that it was also committed to those issues as well, and as well as having an opportunity to defeat the government. Those inside the Labour Party are stressing there is no wider sense of any change in strategic direction beyond this one specific decision. I guess, finally, the the Labour Party conference is coming up this month. What should we be looking out for? I think we're looking out for, hopefully, a bit more detail on exactly what Labour is going to be doing. I think a sign of the continuity that we're likely to see from Lisa Nandy through to Angela Rayner is, as I understand it, the fact that a planned quite high level and you know relatively low on detail planning policy paper that was being that has been drafted for for release and discussion at the party conference the idea is is that that is still going to be released and um i'm sure angela rain will cast her eye over it but they're not pulling everything and saying we need to relook at everything and potentially rewrite everything and think about what we're doing they're happy to go ahead with what they were in broad terms with what they were previously planning. So we're just looking forward at the conference to Labour kind of slowly putting a bit more flesh on the on the bones of what it's going to be doing. Thank you very much, Joey. We look forward to uh, to hearing more about that. In the meantime, I'm sure you'll be continuing to look at it. So I'll uh, I'll leave you here poring over the uh, the snippets of information in the Labour Party section of Room 106. Thanks, Richard. I'll get back to it. Okay, well, leaving Joey behind, I'm just going to move across to another section of Room 106, the place where Michael Gove's announcements of new policy initiatives are kept. And this is a very large space, but parts of the sort of cubby holes don't have a great deal of documentation in them but I can see one of the cubby holes full of fresher looking information I can see my colleague David Blackman our regular correspondent on some of these matters standing looking at it David hello hello Richard I think you've been looking at this new team of planning experts that was announced recently by the leveling up secretary Michael Gove. And uh, this team is going to be tasked with helping to deliver large-scale developments, I believe. Indeed. So just first of all, can you tell us a bit about what the team's called and, and why? Well, the uh, the working title of the new team, uh, which I understand is the Action Task Force for Land Assembly Sites. So as it says on the tin, it will have a fairly strong sort of remit surrounding land assembly and compulsory purchase. It's also a bit of a nod to the previous ATLAS team, or the acronym is a bit of a nod to a previous team called ATLAS, which was... Uh, originally set up within English partnerships as long ago as 2004, and that was set up to plug skills gaps in local planning departments and was only wound up uh, six years ago by Homes England. So you said a bit about the team's remit. Anything else to say about what its remit is and, and where it will operate? Initially, it'll operate in Cambridge. This was announced on the same day that Michael Gove announced what he referred to as Atlas 2.0. And the remit there will be to help with the development of what Gove announced would be a new quarter for Cambridge. But he also said that they'd be working in the investment zones areas. These were announced by Jeremy Hunt in the spring, and they're generally 
places which have a mayoral combined authority. And so far, they are Greater Manchester, the Liverpool City region, South Yorkshire, Tees Valley, West Midlands and West Yorkshire, also East Midlands and the North East, which are less advanced as combined authorities. The other thing about investment zones as well as a side issue, they're also, they're also meant to have a connection with a, with a university. So economic development tied to higher education. For people who remember the, the previous Atlas team that was wound up seven years ago, how is the new Atlas team going to differ in its focus from the previous one? I mean, when Atlas was set up as long as ago as 2004, as I said earlier, it was really to plug skills gaps within local planning departments. So it had a fairly broad range of expertise. Um, this unit seems to have a sort of a quite distinctively different set of skills. It'll be about land assembly, compulsory purchase. What is the value of a body like this? Why is it felt to be helpful? I think it's sort of generally felt that... Um, It'll be helpful to have any kind of expertise. We know we know how sort of uh, how cash trapped a lot of councils are, how short of resources they are, how short of bodies they are. So generally, you know, any any kind of additional help and expertise is is going to be valuable. Particularly valuable to have um, skills around compulsory purchase and land assembly, where even the the doubtest defenders of local government would say these are areas which a lot of councils don't have in great supply because the number of sites they would have to assemble is is fairly limited. So it often isn't worthwhile for a lot of authorities developing these kinds of skills. And they're often the kind of skills that therefore a local council would tend to sort of bring in from outside anyway. These are just the kind of skills that unless outside of the sort of the biggest or most aggressively developing councils would be in short supply anyway. It's a set of skills that are very rarely found in, in local authorities these days. Yes. In terms of resources, what, what, what sort of level of resources is the new team likely to have? Well, so far, again, details are short, but uh, the government has announced that it's going to have £13.5 million of funding. It hasn't said over how many years that's going to go yet. And so far, a lot of the stakeholders that I spoke to weren't sure about that. Um, £13.5 million on its own is a pretty substantial sum of money. I mean, particularly if it's over a fairly sort of focused period of time, you could hire a lot of people, a lot of experts. The question is whether the money for the Atlas 2.0 initiative will be spent on things like consultancy studies for infrastructure projects or getting involved in the purchase of sites, um, in that case, you'd get through the money pretty quickly. Right, okay. If this is to fund a team of experts, which, I mean, to be fair, that Gove made it sound like it was, it, was to, it was to build a team rather than to commission some um, consultancy work, didn't it? But um, yeah. it could be substantial if it's, if it's to fund a team of experts, but um, I hear that note of, of, of caution. How have local authorities in the areas that are likely to be affected and expected to work with this team. Have they reacted to news of the team's creation? The first authorities which will have sort of any uh, engagement with this are the authorities in Cambridge and Cambridgeshire. Um, sadly, it didn't get off to the best of starts. Um, there was no local engagement. The chief planner at South Cambridgeshire and Cambridge Council told me before the announcement that was confirmed by the likes of the, the mayor of the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough combined authority. So... It didn't start off in a terribly good footing. Since then, there have been, you know, I was told by Stephen Kelly, there have been some weekly meetings with officials at DLUC. So Stephen Kelly being? The chief planner at uh, South Cambridge Council. So weekly meetings there. Still not entirely sure what the remit is. The caveat that was expressed to me generally by a lot of people in the, in the Cambridge uh, 
area was that land assembly isn't really the thing that they need most of all. They say that a lot of their sites are big sites, which a lot of their proposed development sites or the things which they're they're designated in their local plans are already existing sites like the Marshalls Aerospace Airfield, which has been lined up for years for development. The issue there isn't assembly. A lot of the other ones, you know, Homes England have got a, a fairly strong profile in that part of the world. So what they're saying is that land assembly isn't the issue in in Cambridgeshire. So perhaps there should be a kind of a more horses for courses approach when the government is thinking about how it helps some of these local authorities with planning expertise. Interesting point, although I guess to some extent it's hard to build a, a team of experts. It's one thing to say, right, we're going to build a team of experts in land assembly. It's another thing to build a team of experts in um, in every expertise that every different authority might need. But um, yeah. Interesting that they, uh, the first uh, area to be affected, some people there don't feel that it's the right type of expertise is being offered. Mm. What else do we know about the team, such as you know when it's actually going to start working and when the staff are going to be in place? Well, so far, very little. And, and the people who are at the coalface, that's what they're saying. They're saying they don't know when it's going to start working. To be confirmed, I think, is the, um, is the main message. Is it fair to say that the idea of a specialist team like Atlas, maybe with a slightly different remit to Atlas, but that idea of a a specialist team within the the government's regeneration agency is something that's pretty widely welcomed? Generally speaking, yes. As I said earlier on, a lot of local authorities are short on expertise, so they will welcome the help. Okay, well, many thanks, David. I will leave you looking around for some more scraps of information about this and uh, look forward to seeing you in Room 106 again soon. See you soon. Okay, time to get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great, that's another edition complete. We'll be back next week with another update on the past fortnight's biggest planning news stories. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Inga Marsden and Till Owen from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink. And thanks for listening.